Psalm 48. As we conclude our summer study of songs, I trust our study this morning will set you on a course to perhaps a better understanding of how to work your way through some of the New Testament language that is designed to encourage us in our pilgrimage. I want to ask and answer the question, what is the significance of Mount Zion for us today? Here we have a song that focuses on Mount Zion. There's a lot of geography in here. There's this holy mountain. It's beautiful in elevation, so now we get this topography. It's in the far north, as the language of the text is. Then we have a little bit of history. Some kings would come against this kind of fortress city, and they'd be turned away in fear. And then just when we thought there was something a little bit more relevant for us in verse 9, we get to the thought of God's steadfast love. We're immediately pulled back into Old Testament ideas of, of a temple structure. I think often in the Psalms and in much of the Old Testament, we feel a little lost or distant because we fail to recognize the pictures in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in the New. So we hear phrases like, Hear, O Israel, or O Jacob, or Daughters of Jerusalem, and in our text, Mount Zion. And it immediately feels old, another people, another place, another time. But when we read the names Israel and Jacob and daughters of Jerusalem and Mount Zion and the holy city in the book of Psalms. We should be asking, what does this have to do with me? And we should think our way from Old Testament to New Testament. When you read those names, Israel, Jacob, Jerusalem, Zion, you need to think to yourself, these are the names or the nicknames for God's people in the Old Testament. We see it just the psalm before in Psalm 47, verse 4. He chose our heritage for us. And we're thinking, oh, this is good, it's for us. And then we read, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. And immediately it like falls away. We think, oh, is that, is that like about Israel, the family of Jacob? When we read of Zion, we need to think to ourselves, this is the place where God dwells with his people. It's where God reigns. And so Psalm 9, 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Psalm 50 and verse 2, out of Zion, God himself shines forth. The task for us is to link the Old Testament pictures Jacob, Israel, daughters of Jerusalem, Zion, to the New Testament realities by asking questions like, what does the Old Testament call the people of God? Well, he calls them Israel or Jacob or Ephraim, Jerusalem. What does the New Testament call the people of God? He might call us his kingdom, 
his priests, a holy nation. You might call us the church. And suddenly when I see in Psalm 47, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves, I can read that in in all of the scripture's revelation and know that he chose our heritage for us. His church whom he loves, his people. Because in some ways a lot has changed and in other ways nothing has changed. A lot has changed in that we're not gathering at a temple mount in the city of Jerusalem in the land of Israel where God made his presence known to a a, a people that had a genetic relationship. They're all the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So things have changed because we're not genetically related to them, most of us. We as the Gentiles have been included into what is the same, the people of God. As you read the Psalms and your Old Testament, don't be intimidated by Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, daughters of Jerusalem, and Mount Zion, because this is all the language of helping us understand we are God's people. We could ask the question, how did God dwell among his people in the Old Testament? And we could study a tabernacle in the middle of the camp with all the tents of all the tribes all around it. And there was God in the midst of them. And his presence was known by a cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night or by a smoke that filled the tabernacle when it was first constructed. Later on, it was Jerusalem and a temple. And again, the glory of God filled that new temple of Solomon with this smoke that kind of blinded everything else that was planned for this ceremony. That's where God dwelt with his people. We know that from our Old Testament. But now answer from the New Testament, what is the fulfillment of God's dwelling among his people? Was it in the same cloud of smoke in a building? Or does John instruct us when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? And we beheld his glory, not in a smoky temple, but the glory of God. As though we were seeing the glory of the Father revealed in grace and truth to us. We need to get better at connecting these Old Testament words and phrases to the New Testament realities to which they point. So how does Psalm 48 help us to link geography the geography of Zion with the kingdom of God. How do we link then what God was doing among his people to now what God is doing among his people? I want to show you six links in our text that can bring in our minds these two ideas together. Oh, all this talk of Zion is what we know of as the church and the kingdom of God. Let's just talk for a minute, though, before we get to those links about what what is this word Zion? If you grew up in the church, you know at least a few old hymns that mention Zion. The new hymn we sang today spoke of Zion. More of 
one of its applications to the reality of our future home in heaven with the Lord forever. Because Zion, we're going to see, is really about the presence of God. It's where he is. So there is a sense that heaven will be Zion. And so we can sing songs of old like we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Yes, we are. But there's also the point that we, we are living on Mount Zion as the church. Where does Zion come from? Well, just remember, we can use Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, all interchangeably. In the Old Testament, it was that place on those mountains where the city of Jerusalem developed and where the temple would be built. But Zion was originally part of the Canaanite domain. So when God's people are led out of Egypt to the promised land, they take over the land of the Canaanites. Well, one of those tribes that you'll find in the list of Canaanites are the Jebusites. They lived in what we now think of Jerusalem, and their fortress, their city was called the city of Zion. In 2 Samuel, when David finally gets to actually become acting king, we're told that he defeats the Jebusites and makes Zion his home territory. He's going to make that the capital, the place of his palace. And from that point on, we hear city of David, and sometimes we're thinking Zion, Jerusalem, the capital, and other times we're thinking birthplace, Bethlehem, the city of David. When you read Zion, we should be thinking City, eventually Solomon builds a temple. And what Zion becomes significant for in the Old Testament then is God chose to dwell there in victory with his people. The land has been conquered. David is king and he begins to build an empire. That empire culminates handing it off to Solomon who builds the temple and God's presence fills that temple, and Zion becomes synonymous with the people of God, whose God dwells among them powerfully. When we think of Zion, we could think of one word, reign, R-E-I-G-N. It's where God reigns. He reigns out of Zion. He's enthroned there, the Psalms told us. Now we must ask this question. What language of the New Testament prescribes the presence of God in victory through his people? Because that's Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The presence of God in victory through his people. In the New Testament, that language is overwhelmingly the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus preached about it. He says it's near. He says to some of his enemies, even you're going to see it in its fullness. The kingdom has come. And the apostles took that message of a kingdom to all the world. It's the church. And so as we study Psalm 48, let these... Old Testament words and pictures steer us to our New Testament understanding. We're not reading about ancient cities and citadels and walls and, and trying to make some stretch of an analogy to today. 
these words are actually pointing us to the reality that God is building his church today. His kingdom is advancing. So what are the links that we find in Psalm 48 that can help us join back then to right now? That what was true for the Old Testament people of God is still true for the New Testament people of God. How do we realize that a song sung 3,000 years ago is still a song we can study and sing today? What we're really asking is, is Psalm 48 about a city nestled away in some mountain far away, does it have any relevance to us? The answer is yes, it does. And I think these six links between the geography of Zion and the kingdom of God will help us. Link number one. How do we join in our minds geography of Mount Zion, present reality of the kingdom of God, the church? And it starts with a great king. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The first connection, the first thing that is the same for Mount Zion of God's people, the Israelites of old, and God's church of today is the fact that there is a great king, and it's the same king. He's greatly to be praised. His dwelling is a holy place, verse 1 tells us, the holy mountain. Not because the mountain had anything to do with the holiness, but because God was there. Just like Moses, when he comes across the burning bush, the bush wasn't holy, the sand wasn't holy, the place became holy because God chose to dwell there. The text goes on to say that this dwelling place of the Lord, the city of our God, his holy mountain is beautiful in its elevation. It's the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Much has been made about this description of the far north. It's because in the English words, it's a little confusing. We're trying to think, no, Mount Zion is actually exactly halfway in the middle of the nation of Israel. Some have said, well, if you divide the nation, northern tribes, the southern, then it's in the far north, just that the tribes aren't divided at the point of the writing of this. Well, then we look at the Hebrew words and we realize it's actually not the word north. It's the word Zaphon, which is a place. It was the, it was the mountain dwelling of the Canaanite gods. So they believed Baal lived on this high mountain and how impressive it must have been to have this fortress location for their gods. And the psalmist is saying, wait a minute. The true and living God, maker of heaven and earth, maker of those mountains, he actually lives in the mountain and his dwelling is holy. He's the great God who's greatly to be praised. And so the north direction isn't as significant as an esteemed place of the gods. And the psalmist is saying, you think your God lives in a mountain. Our God has his holy city. He's the great God. He's greatly to be praised. He's the Lord. And where he dwells is the city of the great king. The psalmist says that this holy mountain is the joy of the whole earth. 
And it's true. When you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'll read of neighboring nations coming through and past Jerusalem and being amazed and saying things like, what kind of God must the God of this people be? But the opposite is also true. When God withdraws his presence from Mount Zion and allows Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to bring three waves of attack on that city and and leave it in ruins, it also says in the prophets that the enemies of Israel came by wagging their heads and saying, what kind of God allowed this to happen? So it's clear that Zion, the city of God, this city set on a hill was made to declare God's presence in victory with his people. It's the joy of the whole earth. How is that true? Well, through salvation by faith in Christ, God is redeeming sinners, Revelation tells us, from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. The joy of God dwelling among us is a joy that is to spread through the whole earth. It's why we sing a kingdom-themed Christmas carol, joy to the world, the Lord has come. The fact that God would choose to dwell among us for our salvation is good news for all to hear. That we can experience the joy of being restored forever to our God and King. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the kingdom of his saints. Be they Old Testament descendants of Abraham or the New Testament descendants of Abraham by faith. The people of God rejoice in a great king. When you hear Zion, don't think first ancient city Hear that as a buzzword for the people of God rallied around a great king. But there's another link that we should see. As we think of our great king, we should also be thinking about a chosen people. In verse 1, someone is doing the praising. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised by whom? The people of God. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, the psalmist would announce. Three times in this psalm, the Lord is described as our God. It goes back to Exodus 19 when God came to them and is going to establish his covenant. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are the terms of the covenant. And he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And at the end of the reading of those commandments and the remaking of them after they're broken, the people gather and sacrifices are made and blood is shed and that blood is sprinkled on the tablets of stone and sprinkled symbolically on the people in the sealing of a covenant. God said, you will belong to me and I will obligate myself to you in love. A chosen people the people of Zion, of Jerusalem, the Israelites were the chosen people of God where he would choose to make himself known. 
with the intent that the, the nations would hear of him as well. So how do we think of a chosen people in New Testament language? We don't call ourselves Israelites or Zionists or the sons and daughters of Jerusalem. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. We call ourselves the church. So in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7 says, God set his love on Israel out of all the nations of the earth. And we studied 1 Peter not long ago. And there Peter says, we are a chosen people, a holy nation. Not much has changed at all. It's broadened. It's not just Jews and Israelites now. It's all the nations of the world. But what is exactly the same is that a great God has a chosen people. Zion need not be confusing to us anymore. Because we're seeing how they link together. It's the same story. We've tasted the joy. And now it's ours to spread that through the whole earth. There's a third link. Let's call it a formidable strength. That word formidable means impressive. Maybe even intimidating. It has a a certain kind of aura about it that it just commands at least a second look. Like, what is this force to be reckoned with? A formidable strength. And the psalmist gives us this brief history lesson to make the point. The kings assembled, verse 4. They came on together as soon as they saw it, this great city of God. They were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. We can comb through the scriptures to try to see, is he referencing a particular story? When it comes to the king's assembling, there's several accounts in the Old Testament. One of them is a group of Assyrians under Sennacherib. They come against Jerusalem, and even before the battle begins, the angel of the Lord moves through their camps and slays 185,000 Assyrians, and they wake up the next morning and flee, it says, back to Assyria where God's people did nothing. The enemy encountered the city and the presence of God chased them away. The prophets mentioned several times where God brought a wind that would destroy the ships of Tarshish. So maybe it's general themes, maybe it's specific stories, but the psalmist wants us to know the historical record shows that when God is present, through his people, in victory, it does not bode well for his enemies. A formidable strength. The text goes on in verse 8. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Now the city of our God is used several times in this text, but here it's the city of the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew is Yahweh, the name for God, and Sabaoth, the Lord of commanding armies, the Lord who is a warrior captain. This this is our God 
in the garb of fighting for his people, the Lord of hosts. So this is like the headquarters for the army of God. Meaning again, God is present through his people in victory. So how do we think in that language, the Lord of hosts in Mount Zion, in his city? How do we think in New Testament terms? Well, I think we hear Jesus echoing this promise of verse 8. That the Lord of hosts will have a city. And he goes on to say, the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Jesus said it a little differently. On the truth of who Jesus is, he says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, if you know that text, then you know what Psalm 48 is doing. It's not talking about an ancient city and calling us as New Testament Christians to to look to Jerusalem and think that somehow on that place there's going to be some great rescue. No. He was simply showing us an Old Testament picture By that, it's a reality. It really happened, but it was picturing a greater fulfillment to come. Because it sounds good. Mount Zion, the city of God, it'll be built forever, except that it wasn't. The Babylonians made pretty light work of it when they really got serious about destroying it. So there has to be something more. And some will still look to Israel and Jerusalem and and God's going to do something and he's going to build a city there and a temple there. And I'd say, well, that's still going to be brick and mortar and it's not going to last. That's that's not the great hope of eternity. The reality is that a great God has a chosen people and in his dwelling among them, he manifests a formidable strength that ultimately ends in complete victory. We see a glimpse of it at Mount Zion, Jerusalem, intimidating its enemies but we see a much greater realization of it when Jesus says, not even the gates of hell can withstand the advance of the church, of the kingdom of God. Ours is the promise of victory. Ours, the people of God. And ours is the responsibility to let the formidable strength of God be on display in us. How foolish to be the fulfillment of of Mount Zion, the city of the Lord of hosts, who defeats his enemies. And yet we live day to day saying, oh, I keep losing my temper. I keep looking at pornography. I just can't help it. Psalm 48 is saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your life is supposed to be manifesting this formidable strength the strength of the God of angel armies through his people for the nations to see. So stop saying I can't and recognize what you mean is I won't or the I can't is betraying an inability to do anything righteous because you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You've not been changed. You've not been made a new creature. But the language of a Christian saying I can't is is defying the Psalms and all the language of Zion and kingdom and triumph. 
Ours is the promise of victory. Not only in heaven someday, but now as that kingdom reaches further and further into the realm of unbelief and darkness. Find the victory in your own life. See where God can make you victorious and then understand that that thriving Christian life becomes a conquering Christian life. Zion equals the presence of God in victory through his people. We can talk kingdom of God and the church all day long, but if we don't realize it's you and you and you and you and every one of us that are believers in Jesus, then we're really just talking theory. Some ideology of a kingdom. But as Revelation told told us in our affirmation of faith, Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, has made us a kingdom and priests to God. We are the kingdom. Our victory, collectively in Christ, is what is advancing. So here in the geography of Zion and Jerusalem and mountains and elevations, here the kingdom of God assaulting the darkness. Link number four. What was the same then as it is now so that we can join Zion with kingdom? A responsive worship. A responsive worship. The worship is seen now in verse 8. We have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We've seen what God is doing there. We've heard of it. We've seen it. Verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love. Verse 10, as your name, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. So we've seen what God has done among his people. We've thought on his steadfast love. We've come to understand his name and how it demands of us praise. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. There's all this revelation and response We're worshiping, we're hearing, we're seeing, we're thinking it through, we're praising. Verse 11, we're glad and we're rejoicing. But it's all responsive. Actually, to say responsive worship is redundant. We could eliminate responsive because worship is always a response to who God is. And so they saw what he did in verse 8. They responded to his love in verse 9. They praised him for his righteousness in verse 10. They're glad because of his judgments in verse 11. When they went to Mount Zion, singing, as you remember, those psalms of ascent as they went up the steep incline to go and worship God, it was because of what he had done, how he had revealed himself in power. So what has changed? Well, not much at all, except we don't go up a mountain Because as Jesus told the woman at the well, a day is coming and it would be soon when he said that, that it's not going to be we go to this mountain to worship God or that one. But no, we worship him in spirit and in truth. And so every time we gather to worship as God's people and every time you worship and sing in your car or read the scriptures on a lunch break or sit down and, and talk about a spiritual truth with your family at dinner, 
That's the response of worship. When we stop and just think, I have thought, the psalmist says, of your steadfast love. Here is love vast as the ocean. Where God kissed in love this guilty world. Why would God love me when I'm a guilty enemy of his? What love is that? Here is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Just think, and it's worship. Praise, and it's worship. Marvel at righteousness, and it's worship. They did it 3,000 years ago at Mount Zion, and we do it now as the new Zion, as the kingdom of God, as his church. This psalm is ours because it belongs to God's people. Our God, the God you and I worship, is the same great God they worshiped. This link of our responsive worship helps us unite these old ideas, Jerusalem, Zion, mountains, Israelites, to the fulfillment of all of those and what God is doing now in us. Number five, Note a confident faith. A confident faith. In Psalm 48, they were told, verse 12, walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. Tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. There is, there is a building confidence here. It's not a blind faith. He says, you go see it for yourself. Go up the steep hill and see this fortress of Zion and see the walls and walk on them and see the towers and the, and the overlooks and, and just consider the strength and security of this place and tell others that where God is, is a fortress. That's why God said earlier in verse 3, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. God wants us as his people, his church, in this advancing kingdom to be a people of confident faith. So go take a look at God his plan of salvation, how a great God chose a people. Examine your worship and recognize you are are in a place where your faith can be confident. Check out the fortress, which is God. Because that's the thing, they walk around this city, this fortress, this towers, and they're told to tell the next generation that this citadels, ramparts, walls, this is God, our God forever. Well, was God a fortress? Was he a rampart? Was he a tower? Was he a stone wall? No, God wasn't in those things. He's not those things. But all of those picture for us the stability. This is our God, a rock-like fortress in which we are completely safe. Do not doubt If faith is weak, pray for strong faith. 
At times when faith is weak, confess the sin of unbelief. Because God has said, I am a fortress. Why would you doubt that? This psalm is ours. Our God is great. And so we should greatly praise him with a confident faith that's anchored in his character. If you were to step back and kind of walk through this psalm again with this eye toward faith, this is what we would see of God. It begins with, he's a great God. We're invited to come and experience the joy of God that can fill the whole earth. We could be swallowed up in his steadfast love. We could know that he is righteous and marvel that he makes his people righteous. We could see it for ourselves. We could be sure and be glad. Finally, we see the geography of Zion and the kingdom of God are linked by a personal shepherd. A personal shepherd. The song concludes with these words. He will guide us forever. You see, Zion is more than an ancient city. It's about his presence with his people. And we could say the kingdom of God is church, but it's, it's more personal than that, in a sense. Yes, the kingdom of God could be personal in ways. The church can be personal. We've been purchased with his own blood. That's pretty personal. But lest we keep thinking kingdom and church as really big, this psalm that talks about the big idea of the kingdom of God, his people, his church, brings it back to the, the personal touch of Psalm 23. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord enthroned at Zion, that Lord is my shepherd. He will guide us forever. He'll guide us to green pastures as needed. He'll guide us through the valley of the shadow of death. He'll guide us with his rod and his staff, both correcting and protecting. He'll guide us, setting a table, even in the presence of our enemies, with that kind of peace and security. And he'll guide us, hounding us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. We have a personal shepherd. In this psalm that seems like ancient cities and structures and a different whole world away, we're actually being reminded that you are God's church and he will guide you forever. Zion means that God will guide you this week in ways that advance his kingdom. Because nothing's changed from Psalm 48 till now. God is still intending for his glory to fill the whole earth. He is still intending for his name and his fame to be spread all over the earth. So this promise that God will guide us forever is incredibly personal. It's incredibly hope-giving, but it's also incredibly direction-setting. God's promise to guide me this week is rooted in his desire for his glory to spread. But bring those together, the greatness of God's glory with the way you're going to need to be guided as a parent this week. And know that, yes, I will labor to parent well because the glory of God 
can be seen. I will labor in my work ethic in the workplace despite all kinds of frustrations and ungodliness because the glory of God is at stake. He will guide me through this. I have that assurance. No wonder Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Make that your priority. And he'll take care of all the rest of the the daily stuff that we worry about. It's not because those things are unimportant. It's because those things are served by that foundation of, I know what comes first. Zion. Perhaps it was just an old sounding word from the dusty hymn books or Old Testament psalms. But not anymore. Let this one word, Zion, remind you of the triumphantly advancing kingdom of God through you this week. And know that our good shepherd is also our great king. Let us praise him. Heavenly Father, our week looks full and our schedules will be busy. We have so much to do, and yet your plan has not changed. Your purpose is the same, the advancement of your kingdom, the spread of your glory, the growth of your church, the honor of your name. So strengthen our faith and use us as you see fit. In this moment, we yield ourselves to you in thankful worship for bringing us into your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.